Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. I'm so excited to share this episode with all of you. Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris is here, four years in the making, and in my opinion, the finest medical historian working today is on the podcast. Dr. Fitzharris wrote The Butchering Art several years ago, an incredible book, if you haven't already read it. And she is back with her next book, The Face Maker. It is coming out this week. Links in the show notes, buy it. It is fabulous. It is a remarkable story of a World War I surgeon, Dr. Harold Gillies, who did facial reconstructions of soldiers who had taken facial injuries during the First World War. Dr. Fitzharris just has an extraordinary knack of bringing history to life, of shining light into little corners, into interesting spaces, and into really important lessons that we can draw from history. And she is just so good at it. I'm a history major by training. This sort of stuff, I just eat it up. But she is really, really at the top of her game with the face maker. She and I have been going back and forth around getting her schedule to come on Explore the Space literally for almost four years. So Actually, getting her on the show was an absolute blast, and she is incredible. You will absolutely love this. And again, links in the show notes to the book. She is going on a book tour of the United States this week, so you can click on the link as well to her website in the show notes to get the schedule and the locations and all that good stuff. You can also check out the whole archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can check out the Explore the Space Show merchandise store at www.explorethespaceshow.com forward slash merch. And of course, you can check out Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. Please do share it with your friends, your colleagues, family. It really helps this out. And uh, just super proud of all of the great stuff that's in the archive. We're coming up on episode 300, which is pretty exciting. And speaking of exciting... Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris is on the podcast. The Face Maker is available. Go and get yourself a copy of the book. And now let's get to the conversation. Lindsay, welcome to Explore the Space Podcast. I am so happy you're here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been we've been trying to coordinate this for so long. You're, there's going to be a prize now for the guest whom I have waited the longest for <laughs> will now be the Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris Award. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
because I, I think it's been I think it's been like four years. It's it's been it's forever. Been you know, the butchering art came out in 2017, and you yeah. came onto my radar at the end of like a brutal book tour. I was like right. a, a husk of a woman at the. I was like, I can't <laughs> talk anymore about this book, and yet for four years I continued to talk about this book because I, I mean it's it's a, it's it's wonderful that there's so many readers who really connected with that story. But yeah, it gets at the end of a book tour, you feel really depleted at it. And I was like, oh, let's keep, and we kept putting it off and putting it off. And then I was like, well, let's just talk about the new book. So we've now waited and here we are. And here we are. I'm super, super excited. I have read the new book. I love to pass compliments. I like to be deliberate about how I do it. And I was thinking about this last night. What do I want? How do I want to describe the face maker back to you as the person who poured their heart and soul into it? The book is incredible. That's not just a Thank easy you. platitude. It's 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 wonderful. It should absolutely be bought, downloaded, read, enjoyed. So I'm a history major by training. I got my degree oh. in history. I studied 19th century American history, primarily the American Civil War, which is relevant to this because mm-hmm. like in the face maker, there's lots of medical advancements and also this understanding of the horror of war as technology expands into yeah. new frontiers and what it can do to human beings at scale. I I chose not to be a historian. I went into medicine. I love being a doctor. If I had been a historian, (laughs) this is the book I would have wanted to write. I could never have written it like you. Uh. You are a master at interpreting (laughs) the human experience as both history and medicine. It's brilliant. Well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It took five years to research and write. And there were definitely moments where I thought, what have I done by taking this subject on? Because it's so, I mean, I knew nothing about World War I. I didn't even really know why it started. So anybody listening who, you know, maybe you don't like history that much, I always feel that medical history you could relate to because everybody knows what it's like to be sick. So it's a, it's a very easy, hopefully, way to kind of drop into a story or relatable way to drop into a story. But um, my first book was on Victorian surgery. And then I, I decided to step out of my comfort zone and do this book on 20, early 20th century World War One facial reconstruction. I didn't know much going into it, but I knew there was a harrowing story that needed to be told. And that's kind of where my gut goes. You know, I'm a historian, but I'm a storyteller. And I really wanted to give these disfigured soldiers a voice, but as well as Harold Gillies, whom is whom I call the face maker in this book. This idea of giving disfigured people a voice resonates throughout the book. It is for sure a recurring theme. There's a couple of narrative threads, and that is for sure one of them. There's a challenge that we face, and I think that we can lay this book next to what we're experiencing contemporaneously with how we see and understand violence, how much we allow ourselves to see, how we Mm. can tend to romanticize it. And then when we are faced with the stark reality, the impact that it has on us, the American Civil War, had the you know Matthew Brady's photographs, yeah, the First World War, when there's images like this, and you talk about how people responded to seeing men whose faces had been mutilated by, by weapons of war, and now again we deal with the scourge of violence around the world. What is your understanding, and what do you feel like as both a historian and as a member of society? What happens when we see it? When we see images, when we see film reels, when we meet the people, what impact does it have on us as the observer? 
Well, it's such a good question. You know, with the return of old school warfare in Ukraine right now, I think it's on everybody's mind. Um, yeah. My book comes out on June 7th, but I actually did a pre-release event here in London at the Old Operating Theater, which is a fantastic museum. Everybody should check it out if they come to this side of the world. And I had practiced this talk. I give about a 20 minute talk um, and I practiced it. And I, I've lived with these stories for so long that I forget how impactful they could be to people. And so halfway through the talk, I just put up a black screen and I say, I'm going to tell you what it's like to lay in a battlefield for three days without a jaw, unable to scream for help. And it's about this guy, Private Walter Ashworth, who is injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And a lot of times these men couldn't get off the field because the stretcher bearers just thought they were going to die anyway. Anybody who's ever seen a head wound or even just a small cut on the face, they know it bleeds and it bleeds and it's very ghastly, even though it can be highly survivable. So a lot of times these guys were just left on the field. It Just getting off that field was, was a battle for them. And when I showed the photographs to the audience... Uh, my voice got a little wobbly because I'm seeing their reactions to to what they're seeing. And I, you know, it reminds me of how important it is to tell these stories and to tell them in a sensitive manner. Um, a lot of times these men were forced to sit on blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. They were really hidden away from the public back in, you know, 1917 when they were injured. And I'm hoping that I do their stories justice. I also want to just say that today we might not use the the, the term disfigured. I actually talked to a disability activist about this. Her name's Ariel Henley. She's a fantastic author as well. And we discussed that term. And the feeling was that disfigured was right because these men were disfigured to the society that they were living in. This was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was very intolerant of these facial differences. So I've I use these terms not lightly. I've thought about it. And I really want to make sure that I'm giving the real true experience of these men to the readers. How do you navigate, though, the tension between sharing the story, describing in vivid detail what's happened without crossing into that sort of voyeuristic place where there is an audience for it? People want yeah. to just read about gore and violence and Absolutely. war for the sake of entertainment yeah, and not for the sake of understanding. How do you navigate that? Because you did it. But I can imagine there were probably parts where you had to kind of check yourself and say, am yeah. I crossing into too much of this sort of scourge as mm -hmm. entertainment? Well, I don't pull any punches because I do want no. people to no. know what that's like. I, I lean into the violence. But, you know, one of the things that keeps me in check, too, is, for instance, just the sheer the, the medical documents themselves. I had to navigate patient confidentiality. In some cases, I was interacting with families to get permission to talk about these stories. So there's there's that aspect, like the real aspect of kind of looking through these this kind of material. But when it came to the photos, because there are photos in the book, I again chose them in, with advice from Ariel Henley, the disability activist. I think it was important to show their faces. I don't want to put them on the metaphorical blue bench in 2022. I think we need to look at their faces. We need to hear their voices. For me, it's always about context. If you're just putting it up for the sake of gawking at it, that's awful. But this book contains so much context to their stories. And there was a line, actually. Um, you know, I did not include any photos of men who died in Gilly's care and couldn't complete their reconstructive surgery. So there's a pilot named Lumley. He's terribly burned. He ends up dying in Gilly's care. So in that instance, I put his pre-injury photo of him in a uniform and then the surgical diagrams of what Gillies had hoped to accomplish but couldn't accomplish. How has 
Dr. Gilly's family responded to this because I know it's his nephew who reads the audiobook. Yeah. I'm the I'm a third generation <laughs> physician. And I can only imagine how I would feel if my grandfather's stories from when, you know, he served with the British Army in North Africa and then practiced in rural South Africa. If those stories were resurfaced and received this sort of treatment, how has this kind of reawakened uh, a sense of excitement and pride in the Gillies family. Well, I hope that, you know, that that they are enjoying it. So, yes, uh, Harold Gillies' great-great-nephew is, is a famous actor named Daniel Gillies. He was in The Vampire Diaries and various other shows. And I tweeted and joked that he should read the audiobook because by a weird coincidence, the guy who reads the audiobook for The Butchering Art is named Ralph Lister, and he was related to Joseph Lister. And that was just a complete <laughs> accidental weird thing that happened. And wow. so I wow. was I was just joking with people that, you know, in keeping with the tradition, we should have somebody in the Gillies family read it. And Daniel Gillies got in contact and he said he'd love to do it. And they told me while he was recording it, he would pause occasionally and say, wow, I didn't know this about my ancestors. So it's I think it's been really fun for him to learn the really detailed story. Of course, he knew about Sir Harold Gillies and he he knew enough. But it's it's been wonderful to interact with the family. Daniel's father, John, he lives in New Zealand, uh, Harold Gillies actually was born in New Zealand. So a lot of them are based on that side of the world still. And he said, he wrote me a very lovely email and said, you know, very soon Harold Gillies was going to disappear and he gets to live again through this book. And so that's been wonderful. But of course, the medical historians, and there are a lot of scholars who, who know of Gillies. I don't want to say like I've discovered something here, um, but I, I'm retelling it in a very different way. And I'm telling it in the way where I think the stories that stood out to me that I think were important, that's how I'm retelling the, the face maker. And I think retellings of history are important, right? I mean, how many times have the stories of Abraham Lincoln been retold? Yeah, they get absolutely. Nuanced, they get new interpretations. They're placed in a, in a current context. That's how I read the book is how does this resonate for me in 2022 amidst a pandemic, amidst a public health crisis of gun violence, amidst the war in Ukraine. These things resonate differently depending on when we read them. And I, I appreciate that, for me at least, I was finding again and again places where it's subtle, but I could tell you were writing this to say these are touch points that yeah. contemporary readers can really internalize because this is what we're experiencing today. Yeah, absolutely. How I mean, conscious was that and or how subconscious was it for you as the creator of this? It's always about the retelling. You know, my friend Eric Larson, who a lot of people will recognize his name because he's <laughs> he's Eric Larson, he's a prolific writer. Um, he says that all the time. It's about the it's it's in the telling of the story. So there are a lot of books about Abraham Lincoln, but you know, so, one author's take is going to be different. I do narrative nonfiction, so my books read like novels, not like big tome history books. So I hope that people with no background in history, no background in medicine can read it and understand it and enjoy it and learn something from it. I don't like to to have an agenda. I feel like I'm I'm telling the story as I feel it should be told. It's been interesting as I go through this process cuz some people will say, "Well, this is one of the best anti-war books I've read in a long time. And then other people will say, I think this is a book about heroes and they'll lean into the patriotism. Also, Gillies, he's fascinating because in the epilogue, I talk about how he moves into the realm of cosmetic surgery. He also performs the first phalloplasty, the construction of a penis on a trans man in 1949. The man, 
the trans man's name is Michael Dillon. And when Michael Dillon is outed by the British press, Gilly stands by him. And I said that there weren't that many people in 1949 who would have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Harold Gillies was not one of them. So he's extraordinary in a lot of ways. And I think that depending on what you're bringing to the reading is what you're going to kind of feel. Like, as you said, the gun violence in the U.S. And, you know, you see that destruction to the face in World War One and the and the technology and, and what it does to human bodies. And you can't help but think about that if you are living in America and you're affected especially by these things. I haven't lived in America in 20 years, so I don't think about gun violence really at all living in Britain because we don't have that same kind of problem. So it's, it's I just love talking to readers and seeing what they pull out. I don't try to drive anybody towards a conclusion, but I love hearing about their conclusions. It's interesting that you mentioned commentary that this can feel like an anti-war book because as i was reading it i was thinking of johnny got his gun by yes oh my gosh it's uh, just one of the best if people haven't read it it is right visceral. right set, it, set in world war one all of the same sorts of things but at the same time i was thinking of this as this is a book that if people feel like they want a sense of how to serve humanity how to rise to the occasion how to lead by example that sort of aspirational tone too, with the way you weave the story of not only Dr. Gillies, but the the team around him. You use the word multidisciplinary team in this book many, many times. The women who work yeah. right alongside him many, many times. And that sense of what we can achieve when we're together, the way we can recreate under extraordinary circumstances, the way the soldiers in the yeah. head and neck hospital at Sid Cup come together. That was one of my favorite parts of the book as I'm still doing all of this learning. Do you lay that stuff out or is this instinctive for you at this point? It's such a good, it's a good question because I don't, people ask about the process a lot of times. It's, it sounds so dumb. It's kind of just like a gut instinct where something will go. Even with the butchering art, I remember I cut a, an entire chapter right at the end um, when it was going into production because it just wasn't pushing the narrative forward. And, it, and for me, it's about that narrative. It's about that story. You don't want it to, to lag, but you want there to be enough context you know, around everything. But I think readers will gravitate towards the positive message of all these wonderful medical advances that came out of it. It wasn't just facial reconstruction. There was the development of tracheal anesthesia, blood banking, all kinds of things were happening. But I do also like to remind people that these advances, as wonderful as they were, also served to prolong the war because as doctors and nurses got better and better at patching these men up, they were being sent right back to the front and it was a vicious cycle. So we always have to keep that in mind. It's not a simple a story of progress. Um, and, e- and even in the medical community, it's not a simple story. So Joseph Lister, who is the hero of the butchering art and introduces germ theory uh, to the world, becomes sort of almost the, the problem in World War One because these surgeons are all trained in antisepsis and asepsis techniques. And so when these men are being brought out of the trenches with these infections, they're not recognizing that in, in the first instance. And so they are literally sewing up these soldiers' fate when they are quickly stitching and stopping the hemorrhaging and not cleaning out these wounds to the to this extent they should have been doing. So it's interesting. It's not it's not linear, certainly. I'm glad that you mentioned the Lister question because I was struck by that, that <laughs> the surgeons were 
so well trained yeah. that there were skill sets that they didn't have as the war started. Well, they, These are things that we yeah. experience today. They hadn't seen it. You know, I mean, look right. at we're seeing monkeypox now is starting to appear. And so that's getting us to talk about smallpox, which, of course, has been gone for quite a long time. It's the only human virus that we've eradicated. And so if if smallpox, if someone with smallpox walked into a hospital would we recognize it? Would the doctors recognize it immediately? That would be an interesting question, a terrible and horrifying question. Um, but but this is the problem that some of these things disappear and then the new generation is just not uh, familiar with it. And, and actually, this is why a lot of these pathology museums that especially exist in the UK are so important because it, it, medical students can go visit, for instance, the Hunterian at the Royal College of Surgeons, and they can see these specimens from the 19th century. They can actually see pathology that they wouldn't necessarily see see. So you can see tertiary syphilis, which we've, you know, if we're doing a good job in in the developing world, we don't really generally see anymore. So that's interesting and it could potentially be helpful. And so, yeah, in World War One, they just were not equipped and they were at, at identifying these infections. And so in the first part of the war, this started to happen. They get on top of it, of course. And medicine is, you know, the medical community adapts so quickly. Um, it's it's incredible during World War One. There's a theme through the book that I liked that I've been thinking about as it pertains to you and the work that you do insofar as Gillies and the people around him sort of see this need slash opportunity and they just go for it. Yes. They just step into that tension and get to work. Yeah. And for you, I was thinking about this because there's a lot of things that you, there's, there are a lot of paths you could have rewalked as a medical historian and still had a good career and a good response. The butchering art was a new space for me to learn. It's not that Joseph Lister hadn't had a biography before, but it was just a new interpretation of it. And the same with this book. What is the mindset like for someone when you're sort of surveying the landscape of what, what am I going to do? Where can I kind of be of service? How can I use my skills? How do you spend time in that in that space. I, it's so nice to hear you say that because I, I have like no other skills but this. So thank God. <laughs> thank God I can There's do no this job because that, otherwise okay. like I, I'm just a total disaster in every other way. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I went to Oxford. I did my PhD. I did, well, I did my master's, my PhD. I did a postdoc all at once. I was really intellectually burned out. I, I fell out of love with history because of all of the intellectualizing and philosophizing. And, you know, so I decided to start a blog called The Surgeon's Apprentice. And I started to sort of interact with the public about this random subject that I knew so much about. And it was so rewarding because people really responded so positively. There was no game plan. There was no, you know, grand master plan. And then in 2015, I went through a horrific divorce and I ended up facing deportation from the UK. And I really feel like Britain is my home. And in fact, my ex-husband said I was illegally here because the marriage was over. So they took my passport. I could not work because I was illegally here for a basically eight months while I tried to fight this in the courts. And I wrote the proposal for the butchering art and it saved my life. And I, you know, I did some interviews and I said, Joseph Lister saved many lives, but he also saved my life because this has completely transformed my career, my life, my outlook on everything that I do and in this passion that I love to do. People say, well, how do I do what you do? And my advice is always just 
go from a place of passion. I literally am this nerdy. (laughs) I am this nerdy, Mark. I love medical history. I love talking to people about it. I don't think I would have thrived in an academic setting. Huge respect for academics, but that's just not my bag. So for me, it's just been wonderful. And it's so lovely to hear that people are discovering medical history through my books. We're in the same space. I am not in an academic setting either. I would not thrive in an academic (laughs) setting. It's a lot more fun to be kind of outside of what we colloquially will refer to as like the castle on the hill or the Ivory yeah. Towers or whatever, because we can just have a lot more, a lot more room to sort of play and have some fun. So speaking of that, what do you do while you're writing this? It took you multiple years. Look, I follow you on Twitter. I tweeted you all the time as you're sharing your journey. Like, oh my gosh, I'm super excited. How do you decompress though? Like you're doing difficult, challenging work. Yeah. It takes a toll. Even when it's like, even when it's not the descriptions of graphic horrors of war, it's a grind, it right? Is. I mean, your yeah. index is massive. I know. How do you sort of keep yourself where the creativity always feels top level, where you feel sharp, where you feel at your best? I mean, I never feel at my best. I'm, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always like, why did I? Ta-? I mean, my husband, my I'm remarried, my husband could tell you all kinds of stories. Me just like crying and saying, why did I take the subject on? And it's just, <laughs> and and actually, my my husband is a caricaturist, and he works uh, on a, a hit TV show over here called Spinning Image. At one point, he fell during the pandemic, and he hurt his hand. I had to call the paramedics, and they came in, and they were like, oh my gosh, there's like all these weird caricatures on the walls. There's all this weird medical history. I had all these images of these soldiers on the bed where I had been working and, and there's my husband laying there and they just didn't know where to look first. It was just such a weird experience. But I said, don't look at the walls. Just look, you know, look at his hand. He's an artist. We need to, you know, save this hand. But, um, but. Well, you said you're, you feel like you're never at your best. Oh, yes. Yeah. Really I mean, your, your resting state is, is a pretty high level one. And I guess the question, because all of us, we, we do face this from time to time is how do we sustain the work? How do you Keep yourself in that place of creative chaos and I mean, where there's images on the wall and crazy <laughs> stuff everywhere. How do you keep yourself in that place where you feel as energized as right? You just shared with me at the beginning. You're at the end of the pre- you're at the end of the press tour about to go on the road. And here you are, like super fired up and frosty. <laughs> How do we maintain? Yeah, it? it's it's hard. I mean, with this book too, writing it during the pandemic, of course, it's a harrowing story, and you're you're reading right. these letters, these diaries, and that could be really hard. But you know, I'm a freelancer now. This is my job, and you know, yeah. it, with the butchering art, it was survival. It literally was survival. I had no money. I had an ex that had just pushed me off a huge cliff, and I I needed to make this work, and I needed to make you know a, a, a argument that I should stay here in Britain, which they did allow me to stay despite my Chicago accent that I will never get rid of. And they've tried to beat out of me <laughs> here, but i um, been here for 20 years now. So y- there's, there's definitely that when you're a freelancer, you have to deliver. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to sustain a career as a freelance writer because a lot of people have to juggle multiple jobs. But for me, again, it's, it's the story of my next book. Well, the next thing that's coming out next year is Scourge, which is going to be a children's book about all these terrible diseases from the past and the things that doctors tried to do. And it's going to be illustrated by Adrian, my husband. So it's we're having real fun kind of collaborating on that. And then the third adult book is about Joseph Bell, who is the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. So it's going to be a romp through Victorian forensics and this really wonderful story that I feel hasn't been told in the big way that it should be told. So it's it, it's exciting. I just I love, you know, I always say when I'm thinking about a new book, I live with the ghosts for a while. And I think about who's going to be the next ghost that I, I sort of pursue. 
and uh, I love it. And I love that other people love it too. So it's very rewarding. As your biggest fan in the profession of medicine, you could not have picked a more exciting topic for book three. Oh, I know. I, is, I couldn't believe when I came. I was like, oh why has this not God. been done yet? I'm so excited about it. And, and I've already, you know, the face maker, I didn't have a title for, for years. I mean, literally I was writing the epilogue and I was like, I don't have a title for this book. It was so stressful. And I came across a letter to Harold Gillies congratulating him on his knighthood after the war. And it said, dear face maker. And I thought that's so perfect. That's it. The face maker. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but with the butchering art, I had the title when I sold it. Um, and with this one, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the title. So I ca- I'm calling it Sleuth Hound, which is an old term. Um, and I, I'm just so excited to bring Belle to life in this big way because there's all of these characters that are real life inspirations for like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And they're real. They're based on real people. And these are real criminal cases that are going on in Scotland in the 19th century. So it's going to be really fun. So I keep my energy up out, that way. I keep my energy up that sure. way. So. For sure. When Sleuthon comes out, can we do a live show when you're on your book tour? I would love to do that. Yeah. I didn't I even mean, know you did live on. shows. That would be Holy fun. Holy smokes. That would be amazing. We're doing it. it it's, I, you tweeted about that a while ago. And I even said to my wife, I was like, you can't. Look at this. <laughs> She's doing that. Like, you cannot. You couldn't have scripted this. But is this a trilogy? Is butchering art, the face maker and Sleuthon? Is it a trilogy sort of in that classic sense or is this part of more of a just... No, I don't think it's a trilogy. I think they're, you know, and also I think the butchering art tonally is very different to the face maker, which will be different from Sleuth Hound. You know, it's just, it's about, you know, these people will tell me what the story is going to be. That sounds really cheesy, but that's how it kind of ends up being. And and Harold Gilley's story is a lot more harrowing and serious. And it opens with this soldier, Percy Clare, getting hit in the face. And so it's, it's very heroine but it shouldn't scare people because it's also redemptive i think and it it does have hope and heart in it as well the book is coming out soon the book tour is launching soon yep how do people find you how do they follow the book how do they come to the book tour to get their book signed well soon they won't be able to escape me because there's a lot of interviews coming out so we'll have to make sure this one is one of the first to come out um yeah it's uh you know my name's dr lindsey Fitzharris, so you can find me really anywhere instagram twitter facebook and it comes out on june 7th the face maker and i'm going on tour i'll be launching at politics and prose in washington dc i'll be going next to philly to penn hospital i'll be doing something at the mysterious bookshop in New York City. I'll be at the Harvard Bookstore in Boston. I'll be in LA. I'll be in Chicago. You can find all of this on my social media accounts and you are going to be so sick of me at the end. (laughs) It's going to be incredible. I am super excited for you. I have friends in all of those cities. I'm going to probably have one of them come and get uh, you to sign a copy for me. Oh my gosh. I will, I, have I will send you one. You have always been so supportive. I will send you one. Um, just remind, send me your, your address and everything. When I get, I don't, I haven't even held the U S copies yet. So <laughs> awesome. You have, you have it before me. So, and the one you have is in advance. So it doesn't have the photos, does it? Oh, it doesn't have the photos, but it's an advanced copy. My son reached for it yesterday. And I was like, no, 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 sir. <laughs> but that's, the uncor- collector, pal. that's the uncorrected proofs, but I, I'll send. How about this? Why don't I send you one with the UK cover? Because you can't get that in the US. And then you can Done. buy yourself yeah, a US one if you Done. want. Awesome. I love it. So- that, is, that is so cool. I will have links to all of that in the show notes. Lindsay, amazing. Thank I'm you. I'm super excited for you. This book is going to do incredibly well. Sleuth Hound is going to blow the doors <laughs> off. You're just, you're doing all the things that our profession needs, the public needs. This is really wonderful work. The Facemaker is a triumph. 
the work that you put into it shows through. Congratulations. Enjoy the tour. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. My thanks once again to Lindsay for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. And like I said, links in the show notes to where you can buy a copy of The Face Maker and also to her website, which has her book tour on it. Get yourself a copy of The Face Maker and uh, enjoy. It's, it's a fabulous book, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Lindsay. It was an absolute blast. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Explore the Space. We will be back soon with more great episodes. Until then, definitely check out the archive, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Hit me up on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We'll be back soon with more great content. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.